Good morning and greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. I mentioned here some time ago that I was thinking about preaching through my separation and nonconformity class lessons at that I that I teach at Heritage Bible School. And I heard someone say, a speaker say in a message recently that he's was told that he was more of a teacher than a preacher. And that's kind of the way I feel. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I feel like I identify with teaching more than I do with preaching. It's easier for me when I'm getting feedback and knowing whether what I'm saying is actually connecting uh, with the people that I'm speaking with. But anyway, I realized that I'm not going to be able to deliver this in quite the same way that I do at Bible school because um, at Bible school I expect and wait for interaction from the class and that's part of what makes that class to me a positive class. But this morning I want to give kind of an introduction to the subject of separation. I'd like to ask you this question. When you think about separation and nonconformity or separation in the biblical sense, are your, what, are, what are your reactions? What are your thoughts when you hear about that subject? Are they positive or negative? And if so, why? And I'm just asking you to, to kind of identify in yourself what your feelings are about the idea of separation from a biblical perspective. I don't know if I'm going to have quite enough papers to go around. Maybe my family could take them last. So this is, this is one of the assignments that I give out on the first day of class. And that assignment is, this assignment is kind of a personal evaluation assignment. And I realized this morning that I had not done my homework and I have assigned on there along with that to read the little pamphlet by John Koblenz, our written standards for the church. And I have a question on there about that little pamphlet. So, um, home folks, I can get you some of those if we don't have enough to go around. But I would like for everyone who, are, who is members here at Mabel Chapel to fill out one of those sheets and have them back to me by the end of May. I will have next week, Lord willing, or actually I'm going to be in West Virginia, I think, next week, so it might not be next week, but I will get to you some of those little pamphlets or written standards for the church. It's not a very, it's not a very, it's not a lot of reading, so it won't take you a whole lot of time to, to read through that, but um, just fill those out and get them back to me. So, for me growing up, this uh, subject of separation was, I would say I would have viewed it somewhat negatively. And I don't know, I don't know how that is for you, how it was for you, 
Um, I would say that over the years, my perspective about separation from biblical sense has definitely shifted to the positive. And you might wonder exactly what all is entailed by that. And I would say that the subject of separation in the scripture is huge. And so we're not just talking about a few small details when I, when I talk about separation, particularly. Some of the things that you'll hear as we go through this, you have heard already. I know that because as I have studied for this class, I have used some of the stuff in sermons. I apologize for repeating myself, but uh, hopefully it will make sense to you and fit in and, and be a reminder to you that can be profitable. Do you want me, as we go through this course of these studies, do you want me to give you answers about how to be separate in a biblical way? And the first thing that you might think is, well, yes, it's good to have answers, right? But you'll probably say yes until I tell you to do something that you don't want to do. And then you'll say, no, I don't want that answer. Or would you rather than have answers, would you rather have principles to find answers, to help you find answers? Well, if you say yes to that, then that's going to mean that you're going to have to do some finding. It's going to require effort on your part. It's going to require engagement on your part. But doesn't the Christian life require engagement anyway? You should be saying, yes, it does. It's going to require discipline because you're going to have to actually not only engage in seeking answers, but also engage in applying those answers to your life. And that's going to require discipline on your part. Personal discipline. And if you receive those principles, as you receive those principles, as you think about the principles from God's Word, are you going to be willing to really be honest about yourself, about where you are? Because that's one of the things that's important too. And that's one of the things that I had to grapple with. Was I really being honest about where I was in my life? <clears throat> but I will tell you this, that I believe that separation is a path to victory. When you understand separation for what it really means in the Christian experience, it is a path to victory. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not going to get into those at this point, but I want to kind of set that out at the beginning. Knowing who you are and where you are, where you stand is critical to victory. In instruction class this morning, we were talking about apostasy. And we were talking about those verses that talk about the adversary that we have. He's like a roaring lion that goes about seeking whom he may devour. How many of you want to take a sword and a shield and some armor and go out and fight a hungry lion this morning? I'd personally rather stay inside. I'm not really into fighting hungry lions. That doesn't sound, that's something, well, maybe I should say that sounds a little too exciting to me. But that's the kind of enemy that we have. 
and we need to know where we are and who we are and what our implements for battle are. I'd like to dispel the idea this morning that this is just an appearance issue. I'm not saying that appearance isn't involved, but biblical separation is way, way more than an appearance issue. It's a life issue. It's an inner issue. And it's an external issue too. That's what I mean by a life issue. It has to do with all of life. And I want to begin from that perspective. And it has always been a constant struggle of the pilgrim church, of the true church, to make the teachings of Jesus practical and applicable in their generation. That's always been a struggle. And are there reasons why we should enter that struggle? Do you have those reasons? You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 13 and reading to verse 16. These all died in faith, not having the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly, a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. There's a key word in verse 13, and it's the promises. They received the promises. Have you as a believer received promises? Now look what their attitude was towards those promises. They were assured of them. They were persuaded. That's what that means. They were persuaded of them. They had confidence in those promises. They embraced them. They drew them, they drew those promises to themselves. They took the promises of God and made them their own. They drew them close. It also means to believe joyfully. That's what it means to embrace something. To believe the promises joyfully. So the things that God has promised you, do you believe them joyfully? And they confess them. They confessed that they were. So they declared. They agreed with. They took those promises and they said, I agree with those promises. And not only did they agree with them, but they declared them openly. So they expressed them. So this Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the chapter, the faith chapter. So what does it mean to have faith? And this chapter is full of expression of belief. So to have faith is to believe, but it's more than just to believe in the sense of 
acknowledging within is to express it outwardly. It's to believe to the point, to the level where you express it outwardly. And that's what these people did. And they took the promises of God and they, they were convinced about them and they drew them to themselves and they expressed them openly. And what did they, how did they do that? They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Well, strangers and pilgrims, who are they? They're people that are saying that they don't belong where they are. A stranger is someone who doesn't fit in. A pilgrim is someone who's traveled from another country. And where did they express that? The location was on the earth. And then verse 14, the word say there means to speak. The people, the kind of people who say those things declare plainly that they seek a homeland or they seek another place. In verse 15, if they had been mindful, if they had cared about, if they had wanted to go back to the world they came from, they could have done that. But that was not what they were seeking. Verse 16 tells us that they didn't care about their former country. They had become convinced that there was a better country, a heavenly city. They lived the way they did because they were convinced that something was beyond. That country had captivated their desire. That is where they wanted to go. So, has your desire been captivated by the kingdom of God? Has your desire been captivated by walking with God? Has your desire been captivated by the promises of God? If it has, then separation will not be a burden to you. Because you will be pursuing God and the world beyond with your desire. That will be your desire. Separation is a burden to us when we don't actually want to go there. That's when it becomes a burden. And if your desire is not captivated, you're in danger of or possibly already have lost your Christianity. Now, I'm primarily talking about separation, not specifically nonconformity. And I'll get to that in a little bit, but I want to think about it another way. So time and time again in the Old Testament, God talks about Israel, especially in the, in the minor prophets and in the, in the major prophets too. But as you come through the prophets, God just time and time again talks about how Israel was unfaithful to Him. And He uses the illustration of a marriage and of a lover and says, you have gone away from me. You have, you have a, an adulterous relationship with the other gods. You have an adulterous relationship with your pleasure. You have an adulterous relationship with the things that you want to do and you want to be. You're giving me last place in your life instead of first, and that's a form of adultery. And in Psalm 128, speaking of godly home, it says, 
Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants around about thy table. The church is pictured in the New Testament as the bride of Christ. Christ wants His bride to be fruitful. And as it says in our marriage vows, keep thyself only unto Him. So when a bride commits to her husband, she commits to keeping herself only to that specific man for the rest of her life. As long as they both live. And that means that automatically she puts aside all other possibilities, all other men as possibilities. Before she was dating, she had the possibility of dating any man that she chose. But after she says that vow, she has committed herself to putting away all other possibilities. That's the kind of commitment Jesus once from his bride. And so that means that when we commit to being the bride of Christ, then we are putting aside all other possibilities. We are committing, we are separating ourselves from all other possibilities and committing ourselves only to him. So I want to show you, if I can, through this study, as we go on through these messages, I want to show you, if I can, the positive nature of what that means. Because Christian separation is not just about the negative. The Christian life is not just about what we don't do. Christians should be known by what they do, not by what they don't do. I mean, what they don't do is important, but what they do is most important. And that's the fruit. We don't do things so that we can produce fruit. And the fruit is what we want. Because Christian separation has a purpose. And that purpose is not just to be separate from the world. That purpose is to be unto God. To go unto God. To go to Him. To demonstrate Him. To show Him in the world. So it's an unswerving commitment to the truth. Both of what not to do and what to do. Separation is a distance between us and sin. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 6, turn there. 2 Corinthians 6, begin reading at verse 15. And what what accord has Christ with Belial? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God hath said. I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now the part that I want you to catch there is the phrase in verse 17 that says, Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. So separation, part of separation, is a clear-cut distinction between us and what is unholy. We need to be separated from what is unholy. And God says, and I will receive you. You will be my sons and daughters. 
Separation involves our attitudes and our spiritual desires. And I've already talked about that a little bit. What do you desire? What do you desire to be? What do you want to be in the world? What do you want to demonstrate? See, separation is, is down at that level. That's where it happens. It happens in your heart. It must happen in your heart. To simply put on something external without it happening in your heart will never fulfill what God intends. Will never be true separation either. So if that's the case, then in separation, how close do we want to walk between righteousness and unrighteousness? And it's something I think we need to think about when we're making decisions. Like how close do I want to be on the line between the two? So the story is told about this grandfather that needed to go over to West Virginia, and he lived here in the valley. And I think that was before the roads had as many guardrails as they do today, but he wanted his grandsons to take him over in the Model T. And so he asked him, he said, you know, if you all take me over, if you all drive me, uh, how close to the edge are you going to get? And so his grandson started saying, you know, well, I'd, I'd stay so many inches or feet away. And one of his grandsons said, I'll stay as far away as possible. And that's the one that took him across the mountain. So how far do you want to be away from unrighteousness? Do you want to be a foot away? Do you want to be six inches away? A half an inch away? Or do you want to be as far away as possible from unrighteousness? You see, that, that, that kind of desire, that kind of thought process has to do with what's happening in your heart in relation to separation. Okay, how about nonconformity? So, this, the, word, the idea of nonconformity comes in general from Romans 12 too, and the words, be not conformed, which literally mean not fashioned like. So be not conformed to this world. Or another way to think about it is don't let the world press you into its mold. So nonconformity has to do with the pressure that comes on us from the world around us. So I have a little illustration here. So hopefully you can get the idea that this is the United States. And there's a little dot here that is you. Well, for every person, there's a group of people around that person who are the most immediate. Usually most immediate family. In our culture, it's usually immediate family, church family, or that close circle. Then there's a broader community around them. And usually then you have interactions with a larger group of people, maybe not, not so many interactions with that group of people, but some. And then you might have, you know, Bible school friends or something that gets clear up into Canada and maybe even, you know, around the world, whatever. There's always a constant interchange between you and those around you. There, there's always a constant interchange of influence that is happening between everybody that you interact with. And you see people do things, and that affects you. And, you know, depending on the type of person you are, what your values are, all that stuff might depend on how much those people influence you. 
Now, you can, because of, because of travel and communication, you can choose which one of these circles you actually interact with the most. You can shut the people close to you out of your life, and you can interact with people who are in this broader circle here. Or, you know, maybe a smaller circle, whatever. Or you can kind of, you know, interact with these people, but keep your focus on that small inner group. But whoever you focus on the most, they're going to influence you the most. And there's no question about it that in this circle of in this circle of of atmosphere, you are going to be affected by the ungodly society because they're part of this circle. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. And so we're affected by the society in which we live because we see people, we see people doing things, and it causes us to think things, it causes us to uh, act in certain ways sometimes. Now, we do it by our own choice. We act in certain ways by our own choice, but we're influenced by those people around us. And this idea of nonconformity is the idea of not allowing the ungodly society around us to press us into a certain mode of behavior. So don't get your clues from the people around you. Don't get your behaviors from an ungodly society. It also has to do with the idea of how inner separation is lived out practically. So if you're not going to do what the people around you are doing, if you're not going to do what the, the ungodly society around you is doing, what are you going to do? Well, the rest of the verse says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there should be something inside of you that's coming out and living in a different way than what that society is driven by. Is that society driven by the truth of God's word? No. No. Should you as a believer be driven by God's word? Yes. yes. And so there's a different mode, a different point of reference in your life. So there's another part that's involved here as well. And that's the fact that the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. From the very beginning of the church, it was always the church. It was never an individual perspective about what it meant to be a Christian. You become part of the church. You become part of the community of God. And so this thing of, this thing of nonconformity and this thing of understanding the will of God is structured inside of the community of believers, the church. So will we always agree about what it should look like to be not conformed to this world, but to be transformed? Are we always going to have exactly the same ideas about what that means? No. So what are we going to do about that? We're going to have... We're a body. So if we're a body, we have to work together, right? I can't go get a drink if my mind tells me I should be up here preaching, right? I have to work together. So that's kind of the concept from whence I'm asking you to read John Coburn's little book, Our Written Standards for the Church. Because I think he does a good job of giving a framework of understanding 
how we interact together as a body in relation to how we present ourselves in the world. So we do have to come to some agreements. But how can we agree? Well, there's a couple things that are important to being able to agree in the first place. So I said there's a frame of reference. For us to be able to agree on anything, for anybody to be able to agree on anything, there has to be some basic frame of reference that they all agree upon. And for us, that's the truth of God's Word. And so this is our basic frame of reference. Well, there's a lot of different beliefs about this. One of the things that I remember thinking as the Lord started to work in my life was, okay, so the most conservative groups in this area would say that this is the truth, and every other church in the valley would say, pretty much, this is the truth. But how that works itself out looks very different. So there has to be some kind of a unified belief about what this says and what it means. So what I'd like to do now to kind of bring this together is to talk just a little bit about God's intent. So what does God want? If He wants us to be separate, He wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. He wants us to do it in a collective body. What is God's goal? What does He want to happen in our churches? And in our church specifically? Well, from Ephesians 4, we can see that God wants us to be unified. He wants to be unified around His Word and that His Spirit would empower us to do that. And so, that His Spirit would work in us as a collective body to come to an understanding of this Word and to empower us to live it out in the world. That's part of His intent. That we as a collective body of Christ would prove His will in the world. So if you want to look at Romans 12 too, it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So God wants us as a body to prove what His will is. Well, what is God's will? Have you ever wondered what God's will is about something? I certainly have. So how do you find God's will? Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So is it just love each other? There's more to it than that. It's something like this. Without truth, you can't love properly. And without love, you can't transmit truth. I don't know how to really break it down much more simply than that. But God has a desire, and He gives it with the Old Covenant, and He gives it with the New Covenant. And that desire is that His truth which would bear itself out in love, would be passed from one generation to the next across time. So some of you saw this illustration last fall, but I'm going to do it again real quick. So here's time. And this is truth. And God wants 
His truth to be passed across time. And for some reason, He decided, He chose that we would be the ones who would bear that message of truth across time. It says about David somewhere back here in his lifespan that he served the purpose of God in his generation. And it's our responsibility to serve the purpose of God in our generation. That's how we prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. By proving His will. So you are here. We'll make this your block of time. Your parents are here. Your grandparents here. You have children. Okay, so that's a pretty exaggerated line because I'm writing too big, but the idea is that you will likely influence and be influenced by around five generations of people. And it is your responsibility within the time that you're allotted to prove God's will during your time period. And in doing that, the people that you influence and in you are influenced by during that time period, you will be a part or a piece in God's plan and God's purpose of the transmission of truth across time. If you live according to the truth. So you are affected by your parents and grandparents. But you also influence them. And you influence your children greatly and your grandchildren. But the key is that your life in any given moment is demonstrating the will of God. And if you want references for where you can see this progression, Deuteronomy 6 is the Old Testament. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Now there's more than that, but those are pretty distinct references in relation to the passing on of truth across generations. But that's what God wants. God wants His truth to be known. That verse in Psalm 128 says, Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants round about thy table. So that means that the godly living will bring forth fruit-bearing children. So you could think about that generationally. Because God, one of the traps I think we fall into is the idea that as long as I, kind of like Hezekiah, he was thankful, I think it was King Hezekiah, he was thankful that, that Jerusalem was not going to be destroyed during his time and it would be in his children's time. And I think that's way too short-sighted. We need to have a vision that we're going to pass on faith in a way that it goes way beyond us, generations beyond us. That's what God's vision is. So let's think about those people back there in Hebrews chapter 11 that we started out with. What were their set of values? Where did they place their values? See, that's a big part of what we will pass on will be where we set our values. 
These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is, a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Where are your desires? The root of our separation is where our desires are. If you're taking notes, I'll give you a homework assignment for the next time I preach to read Genesis 1 and Ephesians 6.